Welcome to the Cultivating Success Podcast. Jeff Sofer and Jonathan Wolfson are brothers and business partners of the top landscaping company, Nature's Experts. Nature's Experts is home to six companies that cater to all your outdoor needs. To learn more about Jeff and Jonathan, simply visit us at www.naturesexperts.com. On the podcast, Jeff and Jonathan bring together other business owners and entrepreneurs to share with you how they developed a prosperous company and how you can too. You will gain insights and meaningful advice on creating the building blocks to success and longevity in the entrepreneurial realm. And now, here are your hosts, Jeff Sofer and Jonathan Wolfson. Scott, welcome to the Cultivating Success Podcast. I'm excited to have you here today. We've already had a pretty good dialogue back and forth about getting to know each other uh, before this, and I really just wanted to roll into it and really keep getting to know more about you and really what you've accomplished and how you communicate with people because it's very magnetic. And I think that, you know, there's so much you can learn from other people by asking questions and also by listening at the same time that, you know, when you meet somebody who has real value in an alternate way, but similar to yourself, it's really very encouraging as a business owner to me, when you meet people, they don't, you know, you don't have to learn from people that are only specifically in your industry. You know, at the end of the day, people are people, business is business. And of course, how you execute a task may be different if it's a service industry or it's a, you know, one-on-one customer experience or it's a technology. But at the end of the day, it's about gaining new insight and information so you can apply it to your own business in the way that you best see fit. And Scott, I think that you are somebody who can really help people with that. So I'm excited to have you here today. Thank you, Jonathan. Excited to share. (laughs) So let's start first. Um, Please tell uh, our listeners a little bit about yourself and where you started, what you've been doing and where you are now. Yeah. So, you know, my vocation has always been real estate and finance. Um, I was lucky enough to open my own real estate brokerage early on in my career and then was lucky to and blessed to come across Keller Williams. We converted a 35 agent office that did about 100 million in volume to a Keller Williams franchise. And that was 25 years ago. And uh, so we were the first real franchise that got going in Phoenix, Arizona. And then I did a pretty good job and they allowed me the opportunity to develop the state of Utah. So I became the franchisor in Utah. So I was a franchisee in Arizona and a franchisor in Utah, which means that in Utah, I sold and supported the franchises in Arizona. I just ran the franchises. So that's very interesting. I'd like to pause on that for a second. How back then did you realize that a franchise or a territory would be something that people would want actually of that kind of industry? Because that was definitely like on the cutting edge of like not what people were really doing at the time. And specifically, I would say only in the last, you know, 20 years, maybe. I think that like these franchises are definitely for every type of industry are popping up. And you don't have to be a long, long-term vetted name anymore to really have a uh, franchise. So, what was the appeal back then? Actually, well, uh, back then in the in the early stages when we got started, one of the things that was really lacking in real estate was an environment that taught real estate agents how to think like business people. 
they thought like more like salespeople. And so Keller Williams brought a business model to the industry that allowed agents to not just look at their sales and, you know, and look at what was left over at the end of the month, but rather help them with some specific business models and some systems that help them not only set realistic goals and track their progress, but also give them some tools to help enhance that progress. Uh, Tools like how to hire people, how to interview, how to train and coach. Um, There's a tremendous amount of depth of uh, learning the art of training and coaching and learning the art of a, you know, an effective and potent business plan that's realistic and achievable with tactics that are relevant based on a strategy that's time, you know, timeless. And our strategy. Did they, did they focus like whenever they opened up a new franchise, did they pretty much have like someone who is a particular like leader or organizer who like was the old person who oversaw like X amount of franchises? That was me. Yeah. So that's what I did uh, secondarily. Primarily, I was in, in the first one that we opened. It was me and a, a couple of partners. And we opened the first one and we were kind of winging it. You know, we didn't really know what we didn't know. Uh, all we knew was what the edict was, was to grow with quality people. And so we set out on a mission together and we worked, you know, uh, 24-7 for, you know, three and a half years straight where we were, you know, just basically doing all the growth, all the recruiting. And then in between, we were training on the sales process, the contracts, negotiation, mindset, business planning, and then following the models so that you could end up being profitable. So we we had a lot on our plate back then, but the but it was so much fun because people were eager and anxious to learn how to move from the sales world into the business world. And we were really good at making that distinction and helping people realize the difference. Definitely a difficult time then specifically, because I feel like, so when I first started really working in our profession that we're in about 15 years ago, you know, I was still on the tail end of like, people don't trade like trade secrets, you know, that's how they make their money. That's proprietary. So I would have to think if you go back 40 years ago, you got to think people were like, this is stuff people were holding so close to their vest. They barely wanted to tell anyone how to do this because every single person you're going to be training them to leave you almost. Well, that's, that's why you have to be prepared to really grow and go really big because once you open up the secret sauce, if you will, there's going to be a a percentage of people that will, that will attach to that. They'll massively implement. They'll uh, be able to turn around and teach it to you better than you even taught it to them. You just have to have a mindset of abundance and a mindset of growth, knowing that when one of us does better and gets better and we can help another person in our industry do better and get better, then we raise the level of our industry and we become more and more fiduciary to our clients so that we can command you know, really appropriate fees for what we do because we bring so much more to the party than just, you know, cops and price per square foot and, you know, that kind of stuff. There's so much more that goes into a real estate uh, transaction before, during, and more importantly, even after the transaction is completed, how well you stay connected with your 
with your client base and capitalize on the great work that you do with your client base so that you can enjoy the fruits of, you know, real healthy and appropriate referrals from from your clients that have been, you know, really, really happy with your service. I think that kind of draws into the fact of whether it's then or now, having a clear vision and really taking people under your wing and describing your mission and having your vision be large enough ultimately to encompass everyone else underneath it is really a very important aspect of growing and developing your business because it is about multiplying yourself and people like yourself inside your business and training them so you can ultimately get more sales, take care of more customers, whatever you're particularly trying to do. But having everyone understand that it's not just you know, one plus one equals two. It's that if we all do this, it can compound to this. And then, you know, we're a company of 10 people now, but next year we're going to be a company of 20 people and 30 and so on and so forth. And obviously casting that net, so to speak, where everyone understands how they actually can incorporate into the entire business model of it, of where they actually can land inside the company So they actually want to stay and they're creating something that's bigger than just something that they think they could have done themselves with the knowledge that you've helped them gain. Yeah. And and along those lines, it's important to find the right when I when you hear the term, you hear it all the time, thousands of times, get the right people, get the right people. And when you have, everybody would agree, when you have the right people, life gets easier. It's more fun. It's more lucrative. Everything works better. Of course. Um, what Keller Williams was able to uh, open the door for me was that selecting the right people was really, really, really super important. And they provided a bunch of tools and assessments and processes that were very, very helpful in determining, um, you know, who you want to be in business with. Right. But at the end of the day, there's still more to it than even what the franchise system teaches. And that's where my book comes in. And that's where the, um, the probably the second book will come in too in terms of the how tos and the workshops and those kind of things. But right now, um, there's a there's an it factor that I talk about that I believe should be identified on the front end of your interview or hiring process, not on the back end. And um, you know, I'm here to talk more about that if if you'd like me to talk about that. Absolutely. I know we were just getting into Um, Some of the things that you've done, but let's definitely roll right into it. And the book you did, Long-Term Leader. Yeah. And um, how do you think that fits into this? I'd love to hear more about it. Well, I've been blessed because the way I came upon this was not through my own ingenuity, but rather uh, because of observation ex post after the fact. I looked back on all the really great people that you know, have uh, that I've been blessed to be in their world and their, their, them in my world. And I was trying to figure out what's the common denominator? You know, is it work ethic? Is it motivation? Is it behavior? You know, high D's, high I's? Is it, is it Myers-Briggs? And is it, you know, quick starts in the Colby world? There's all these assessments that different companies have pulled together in any, each case, I would say, yeah, that's part of it. That's part of it. That's part of it. Yep. If they, if they're very direct and honest, that's part of it. But there was a bigger part that I was missing. And the reason I was missing it, the reason I know I was missing it, because I was hiring people on paper that looked perfect. Mm-hmm. 
You know what I mean? I mean, on paper, absolutely. Were, so just so some people understand, there's something called a DISC assessment. Yeah. And there's all different character personality traits right. that this assessment, which it's in a, it's a bunch of erroneous questions that somehow determine that you're somebody who's a people person or you're somebody who likes to be in charge. And it is very, very, very interesting yeah. to have people in your organization take these tests because someone who is in charge might actually be someone who doesn't like to be in charge. That might not might actually be their natural behavior. But this information, you know, I understand what you're saying is only part because technically, so if you find out your key person isn't somebody who likes to make decisions and he's someone who... Um, is much more analytical, you know, it makes you think when we're growing this company, this person might be a better fit in this particular position, but that doesn't paint the whole picture. So please, you know, keep, keep going. Well, what you're talking about with the DISC, which is a very common uh, behavioral profile analysis uh, was originated by Dr. Marston, um, who identified sociability, directness, you know, confrontational, a team player or somebody that has to, you know, be correct and get it right. Those are what I call traits. So a person can be any of those traits and possess the it factor. So they could be uh, orientated towards correctness. They could be oriented towards being a team player. They could be oriented towards being massively like your brother, social and outgoing. They could be very direct and honest and brutally uh, down to earth. And those are traits. The it factor is how those traits are communicated. Uh, I can be a direct person and be a really cool direct person like Mother Teresa, or I can be a really uncool direct person like Adolf Hitler. So it's not just about the behavioral trait. It's about how that trait is carried off, the demeanor, the intention, Mm -hmm. the commitment to it, and the mind mindset of who's to to benefit. Is it just to to benefit me and what I want? Or is it to benefit those around me and what they want so that I naturally get what I want? Of course, you know, the old Zig Ziglar statement, you know, help enough people get what they want, and you'll naturally get what you want. And I've always taken that to heart. And I think, you know, by identifying the it factor, the odds are much greater in our favor that we can help people get what they want, because they show up in a healthy way. They can lead themselves other people take to them. They have a magnetism about them. They have a trust uh, factor about them that's just usually impeccable. Um, these are people that when they speak, other people just listen. And it doesn't matter what their traits are. Their traits can be anything. How do you, how do you find this, do you think, in people? Or how do you specifically, do you think like, you know, <laughs> after a certain point, you start, you know, pinpointing people's real strengths? Well, the strength or the overall um, the overall robustness of whether or not they're going to be the right person, there's an overall fabric to it. And it's what I call their communication agility. And this happens, this is why we interview. If we just worked off assessments and tests and work history and all those kind of things, we wouldn't even need to interview people if you think about it. Right, Jonathan? And when we interview, a lot of times we've already looked at all these assessments and tests and everything that they've taken, and we draw our own conclusions that this is a good person. I need to really you know, put the pressure on this person to get them hired, or I've got to bring this person into my organization, or I've got to do whatever it takes. And in fact, 
the it factor is what is oftentimes considered last in that process rather than first. So what I want to know is how well are they going to get along with people? How well are people going to take to them naturally? Mm-hmm. What is going to be their natural ability to influence and to educate without a lot of resistance from others because there's such a trustworthy energy around them. There's a lot of things that go into this that can really help somebody have a much better chance of success and influencing those around them to get everybody moving on the same page. So when I'm hiring a leader or a CEO, which I've hired several, I'm looking for that it factor that plays into all the other stuff that's necessary. You know, they have to have a success track record. They, you know, they have to show up as a leader. They have to be smart and intelligent and able to solve problems and able to help people lay out their plans. And they have to have some skill. But if that skill is being executed in a really easy and fun way, or is it being executed in a hard and annoying and lame way? When Mm -hmm. they walk into the room and they have a team meeting, do they, do people walk out filled up? Or do they walk out drained of their energy? And most business meetings end up the latter. Most business meetings, the two parties or three parties that are in the meeting, all of them usually walk away with less energy, (laughs) which is kind of crazy, isn't it? Because the purpose of the meeting is to have and move your business forward, move it up. And yet the wrong people take um, feedback as, as, you know, unhealthy criticism. There was an interesting book that I read uh, called Death by Meetings. Have you read that before? Yes, I have. Yeah. It's a great book because it's not it's not written in a way that you would think uh, to express it. So it's the whole book is written through a perspective of like a new hire getting presented into this company. And he is somebody who's a very creative kind of person who's more into the arts and movie and theater and what connects people. And they use this story and this dialogue throughout three quarters of the book to deliver this message of, you know, what do you look for in a TV show? What do you look for in a movie? What do you look forward to? And all these different things and how they deliver the message. And, you know, I think all these different things are, it's so important to just constantly be learning as a leader to figure out how you can implement these things into your business and try to, you know, again, it's making a process that people can feel confident and then they can build and create their own also too. Well, when you're, yeah, when you, that's exactly right. When you're nailing it as a leader, your people are coming to you. If they have a challenge, an issue, a problem, or even an opportunity, they're coming to you. They're bringing it to you to collaborate with you, not coming to you because they need you to answer everything. The right people will come to you and say, hey, I've I've just run into this scenario. John came in and he's got this big client on the hook. He's not sure what to do for him in terms of appreciation. Uh, do you have any thoughts or ideas about how we could appreciate help John learn how to appreciate his client at the highest level? Now we can sit down and have a real healthy dialogue about how to support one of our people versus the manager that says, oh, I got this. I'll just take care of it. I'll do something on my own. And the problem is if he does something on his own for appreciation and I do something on my own, neither one of us are going to be as effective as both of us. So we can bounce ideas off each other and 10 plus the experience for the client because we will bring 
different perspectives and different history of uh, of experiences that we can you know blend together to make it one great experience and save everybody a lot of time, energy, and effort and wasted guesswork because we've already been there and done it. And that's what great leaders do. They pull the experience and wisdom and intelligence out of their people instead of pushing to get it, it's being delivered to you. And that yeah. that's more fun. It's a lot more fun that way. You know, it, it makes me also kind of reflect too on that, the death by meetings book too, is that if you're trying to grow a company, you have to also understand how to let go of certain situations, but also empower people. And the thing is, is that there has to be structure where you can interject your opinion to where you're letting someone be in charge, but you're also there to give suggestions and ideas and you're not overpowering other people through the process as well. Yeah, uh, that's so true. A lot of leaders, when they get into pressure, like, you know, my my father-in-law is a retired brigadier general and, and was in Korea and Vietnam and you know, his saying was, you know, anybody can lead when things are going right. But what about when things go really wrong? You know, are you the leader that's going to show up? And I think with what's going on right now and, you know, the the idea of collaboration, the idea of pulling it out of your people is all an issue around how well the leader shows up in a approachable, safe, but still the boss still you're accountable you know you're still all of that but i feel like i can really tell my boss anything i real i feel like i can tell my guy anything if i've got a problem issue or challenge or opportunity i can go in there and i know that he'll listen by validating my position whether he agrees with it or not is not important the validation and acknowledgement of my issue is more important because now i feel like i'm being listened to and i'm being valued and I feel like, okay, I want more of this. And I don't want to ever leave this because it's so rare to find in business today leaders that actually dive in and care and ask more than one question. Maybe the last three, four, five, six in-depth questions about an issue so that when you're done in your communication with them, you feel like they have a very good understanding of the challenge, issue, problem, or opportunity. Absolutely. People need so to be listened to. So if you would, Scott, keep going through, if you would, the book, because I'd love to know more about the book and what you're, what you're teaching it as some of your points, because I'm always fascinated to learn more. And someone who really breaks down into a book, um, what they've learned or whatever, to me, it's there's always more, there's more than probably what's even in the book that you really wanted to, to get out there. Oh, a ton more. In fact, the book was, the book's 150 pages. When I turned it into the publisher, it was five, 425 pages. So we had to really whittle down a lot of the stories and fluff and save that for the second book. But right now for the first one, it's all about, it's really all about showing up in a way where you have influence over others because leadership is is about influence. There's good influence, there's bad influence. Long-term leaders have good influence. They want to help people get better, grow, be more profitable, make more money, have a better life, et cetera, et cetera. And the way to do that is, number one, you have to be so good at putting people in positions that are right for them, not just right for you, but right for them. Because if it's just right for you and you're putting a square peg in a round hole, then you become a short-term leader because that person's probably going to be with you a short term. 
Most people cannot do jobs or functions if they don't possess some uh, natural ability for it or if they don't possess a, a, a passion. And when I use the word passion, I don't want to misuse it. But what I'm trying to say is they just love doing what you want them to do. So if I want a great recruiter, let's say, I can go through all the assessments I want. One of my really expensive coaches, real expensive coaches in the six-figure area of coaching posed this question to me once because I was complaining. I was whining about not being able to get the right people long-term. And he says to me, he says, why don't you just find somebody that loves recruiting? What a concept. Now, I've been doing it for 20 years. And this guy introduces such a simple thing to me. And I go, you know what? I've overlooked that. Do they really love it? Do they like the chase, the, you know, the, the hunt, the, you know, whatever it is, the victory of, you know, the, the decision, whatever it is. And when he coached me on that, I applied that to every job, to everything. So mm-hmm. people have to love what they're doing. It's not just the recruiting, but that's just an example. There are people that love doing paperwork and homework and crunching numbers. And I'm not that person. I don't love doing that, but I love to know the answer to the detail. I just don't like doing the detail, but I love the answer of the detail and I want to know all the details. So that was very helpful. It can be really motivational also too, you know, because knowing, you know, every business you have to go through different seasons and opportunities And the thing is to do what you're saying, you have to be willing to get to a certain point because you have to create enough opportunity because someone, if you have a smaller company and you're starting out, you're naturally having more hats. And the more hats you make, there's probably only one of those that are really your key thing that you enjoy doing and that you're very good at. So you have to really watch out for these things. And as you're growing, you have to find your new pain points of like, all right, so this person is good at this. And now I need to try to find now what you're saying, this exact person who really likes recruiting. I'm not good at it. This person is really more somebody who likes to deal with data than people. So I need somebody who's outgoing and optimistic and really understands the mission and where we're going in our company versus somebody who really isn't one of being outgoing and don't understand, you know, the people that are coming in the door of motivating them to want to come be hired by us. One of the ways that I acknowledge people's gifts and their contribution to the company is kind of maybe a little bit weird. I don't know if this will work for the listeners or not, but one of the things I do is I'm constantly in awe and constantly grateful for people who do the jobs that I hate. And I am not shy at all about telling my people that I hate the job. I could never, ever do the job they're doing. You know, I don't go, I don't go on and on about it, but I walk in and every, you know, every couple of months, you know, I might talk to them three times a week, but about every two or three months, I'll say something like, I don't know how you do your job. I don't know how you do it. I absolutely am on how you do your job so well. And that's a really great way for me to authentically acknowledge them because I actually feel that way. I mean, it's like, how do you do this? You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, a, it's a cool feeling when you get to that point also too, to really where everyone knows too what you're there for also too as yeah. an owner and what kind of support you can give. 
and what kind of things you can be relied upon, but also them knowing that they have real value also too. So it's not acting like you're somebody that you're not. Listen, I'm a person. These are my strengths. These are my witnesses or my weaknesses. So I think that it's an, it is, it is something where, you know, always adding that human touch is really extremely important. When we're helping agents get started in real estate, one of the criteria we have for hiring is they have to have this it factor. Okay. If Mm -hmm. they don't have the it factor, we just don't hire them. And part of the traits and part of the value system around that is in, because in sales in, you know, whenever you're in real estate is a sales business, it's, it's a task business, but it's a sales business. It involves a sequence of predictable tasks, you know, uh, time over task over time will yield you a, a very good and healthy real estate business but at the same time, not every it doesn't work for everybody. And one of the reasons it doesn't work for some people is because they don't have in sales, you kind of have to have a competitive nature. You know, you kind of have to have that nature where you say, okay, I, I want to be better than the average guy. I, I need to go out and get a lot of clients so that I can afford a lifestyle for fa- my family that's not typical. You have to kind of have a mindset where I don't mean in a greedy way. I just mean in an opportunity way, if that's available for others, it could be available for me and I'll go for it and I'll do what it takes. The other trait you look for are people that speak well, they communicate well, they have a grin, a smile, they have an energy about them, they have a glow, they have a they have an approach that says, you know, they've never met a stranger, you know, I'm your friend. And uh, you put those two attributes together and we have a really good chance of of helping that person become really strong in the real estate world because those are two values that are very important and those those two values also enter into the it factor but i can be a competitor and i can be a healthy competitor right like i'm going to give you my best effort but we're going to go out and have a beer afterwards Right. If I right. (laughs) Or you can be an unhealthy competitor where I'm going to destroy you at all costs and ruin your reputation so that I can get the deal or the listing. You see, I think that kind of comes with a company culture (laughs) uh, (laughs) of of genuinely. Are you playing favoritism? Do you really give everyone the same opportunity? You know, is the reward the same for this person versus that one? Are you uh, do you have new hiring practices for every single person that comes and works for you? And, you know, you started off at this salary, but then now new people are starting off at this salary and your commission was this. And now this person's commission is this. And I think it's really about setting up these these boundaries and these situations so you can have a healthy competition and conversation with everyone that is you're speaking to the group rather than a whole bunch of individuals. Yeah. That's where your belief system comes in. And, you know, you've heard of the, uh, everybody remembers this one, win-win, right? Win-win or no deal. That's a great guide for how you can, how you can influence your people to show up with their, not just in their own personal life, but also in their business life, you know, succeeding through other people is one of the most difficult things that leaders have to do. They, most leaders can, or most entrepreneurs for sure, can do every job in their company. They can do every job. But when you move from being a doer to a thinker and a guide, 
then that sometimes is a very, it feels like you're letting go, but what you're really doing is you're saying yes to leverage. You're saying yes to getting your time back and you're saying yes to actually providing space for other people to realize their aspirations if you're willing to go big enough, right? Well, that's why it all, a lot of it really boils down to what's your mission and what's your goal and is your is your vision large enough for everyone that's wanting to be involved in it also too yeah we want to help our agents have careers worth having you know a career worth having is if you have a worthwhile career in real estate you've got a wonderful career you've got a wonderful uh uh lifestyle enhancer if you're in the top 10 percent in real estate you've got an opportunity to just have a terrific life well, I think that could be, I think, anywhere, any industry, any situation. And real estate specifically is something where it starts off being an individual uh, profession, and it definitely turns into a group effort if you want to be able to do it for a long period of time. But I think, you know, almost any any business in general really has the opportunity to grow to whatever you want. Every market space, every opportunity, every single thing, whether you're cutting grass or you're selling flowers or you're selling honey or absolutely anything, every market is big enough to cast whatever vision and whatever uh, goals that you have, as long as you really have people that are working together, driving towards that same mission. But if you're doing it all by yourself, it's going to be a long road to get there. Yeah, nobody succeeds alone, as they say. That was a term Gary Keller coined years ago that I've that has stuck with me. And I've even I've even taken that a little bit step further. And you know this with your business, Jonathan. Nothing of great significance is hardly ever accomplished alone. Um, usually, it's with other people. I was fortunate enough one time to be handed the baton in the middle of the Atlantic uh, Atlanta Philharmonic Orchestra. And I was in the middle of all the instruments and I had my little, you know, my little baton or whatever you call it. I can't even know what the name is. And I'm conducting and I can hear the strings over here and I can hear every string. I can hear the horns over here. I can hear every horn and it all blends together. And it's like, oh, my God, nothing of any significance is accomplished, you know, solo, so to speak. It was quite an experience and it was a metaphor for the rest of my life was to just surround my people with surround myself with people that know how to play the instruments really well, who are professionals. And man, it really gets fun when you do that. You know what it is? It's, it's, you definitely, when you start feeling what it can feel like to have an orchestra, like you said, a a fine tuned orchestra, it definitely is motivating. I think at all levels to try to reach that level of perfection. And because you start to hear things that, you might not have noticed before and you start to see things you might not have noticed before and you really can start dialing in on really improving it. And you don't realize that these little, little tweaks make massive improvements in every single division that you're working in actually, because it's the sound that you're making, like you said, using your orchestra analogy that the bass is making is affecting how the piano sounds and all of it just kind of comes together the more that you keep working it. And it's really that striving to me in our company, striving for that level of uh, improvement every single day, I think, you know, has definitely created an environment where it's 
certainly much more pleasurable for me, but it's much more pleasurable for everybody else because if something you don't like it, then guess what? We're always working towards becoming better versions of ourselves. So don't worry in time. We're going to get there. We're going to keep getting better every single day, day in and day out. Well, you know, when a leader, it's absolutely right. When a leader shows up as themselves, you know, with truly who they are and how they show up, they open the door for other people to show up with their true selves too. So this is why it's it's a it's an exercise, if you will, in to me anyway, it's an exercise in humility. It's an exercise in being kind, but it's also an exercise in still being a badass. You know, being somebody that wants to succeed, I'm I'm a person I want to succeed at the highest level. I don't want to kill myself. I don't want, you know, to have a heart attack doing it, but I'm very competitive and I want to do very, very well. But at the same time, I have a process I follow that says, you know what, I'm going to let my results speak for themselves and I'm going to let other people speak for how well they like being in the organization and how long they've been and why they're there and all that kind of stuff. And I don't even ask those questions anymore because if somebody's there and they have a smile on their face and they're, you can tell they're committed and happy doing the role that they're in, that says it all. What else is there to be said? especially somebody that's been with you. Like I've got people who've been with me 20, 25, 30 years that, you know, aren't going anywhere else. They're not going to work for anybody else. This is part of the long-term leader formula that I talk about. And one of the, there's a little thing in the book at which maybe some people have caught already. And it's, you got to take a look at your opportunities, your challenges, your problems. You have to take a look at things. You can't ignore things. That's the first thing. You've got to at least get it in front of your face and look at it. Then when you've got the problem, you got to figure out what is the real problem. You have to understand what you're looking at, mm-hmm. right? Is it a symptom or is there a root cause for that problem that needs to be addressed? And then once you figure out what the real problem, challenge, or opportunity is, then you've got to tell the truth about it. You've got to be willing to lay out the physical reality. I had a manager uh, that was, you know, had very healthy goals for the beginning of this year, but, you know, now we're seven months into the year and they're at 40% of their goal. So I, when, when we were talking, the question went like this, it's like, okay, you know where you're at, right? Yes. He's okay. He says, yes, I know where I'm at. And you know, you know that you're behind a little bit, right? And I'm loving the idea that you want to catch up, right? And the guy goes, oh man, I got to catch up. I got to, I got to get better. I got to catch up. And I said, great. So this next week, what's your goal? <laughs> and I just narrowed it down to this next week. What are you going to do this next week? so that you can have a really good month. And he rattled off about five or six things. You know, my good friend, Gary Keller wrote a book called The One Thing. And the one thing is usually the one thing, if it happens, everything else gets easier, everything else is affected positively. So he gives me five things, maybe six. And I say to him, what's the one thing? If you could just get one thing done on this for this next week, what would it be? And he had it just like that. And what was cool about it was it was self-responsibility and his own activities that needed to improve. And he caught on to that quickly. And that's where most managers fall short. They think about what everybody else has to do, but mm-hmm. they don't focus on what they need to do, what they need to get done to make things happen. 
And oftentimes the manager has a much greater impact on the team than anybody else through their own work ethic, through their own efforts, through their getting their, their own results. My job as a business owner is definitely, you know, many hats, right? But one of the hats is to maintain great quality relationships with the client base, right? That's one of my jobs as a leader. And I need help doing that. I can't just do it by myself. I need a bunch of people to help me. So they, and not help me, but help the organization and help themselves. And it all stems from how the leader shows up. And if the leader's somebody that people want to emulate, hang out with, be like, if you will, almost. And if you look at the strongest leaders in the world, people that, you know, aspire to do what they do want to be like they are. They want to follow. And if you have a, if you've ever had a bad manager and watch their employees, the employees will pick up the traits of the bad manager too. And they, they won't treat the customer well. So what well, you most want to people don't realize it takes time also to, to correct those things. Yes. So if you take the time right now and you self-analyze yourself and you're like, you know what? I can do better. You know, just at, a, at a basic level, I can do better. And you realize I'm going to come in tomorrow. I'm going to do better. I'm going to be more optimistic. I'm going to be, uh, more open to helping solve other people's problems. I'm going to be more present, whatever your particular thing that you need to work on. You know, it really is something where it takes time for that to become the new standard. So I think sometimes people get discouraged when you've done something for so long that you're not getting an answer as quickly as you want to. It's ultimately because you have to put in an equal or opposite amount of effort to undo what you've done also too. Yeah. And, and what, you know, what most leaders or managers are always trying to do is compress time. They're trying to get everything done faster. The faster it gets done, you know, if you're, if you're remodeling a house, you want the guys to come in and remodel it in a week when it's going to take six months, right? There's just, there's, just, be nice? there's just a natural thing that's going to happen. And you have to be prepared for that as a leader. Uh, when I get on an airplane and fly from Phoenix, Arizona to Salt Lake City, Utah, it takes an hour and 15 minutes. There's nothing I can do to change that. If we get supersonic travel or if we get Star Trek, beam me up, Scotty, then it'll change. But for right now, it's going to take a certain amount of time to get there. It's the same with people. As they start to learn something new, then they've got to integrate it. Then mm -hmm. they got to play with it. Then they got to learn what works and doesn't work. And if you're a good supportive leader, you're there helping them every step of the way through that learning process and yeah. you're treating it as a learning process, not as a, you know, come on, you, you haven't gotten this yet. Come on. You haven't gotten there yet. Now you can do that with certain people and I can push certain people a little bit differently than others. But for the most part, my energy says I'm here. I've got your back and I'm ready, willing and able to support you in your growth. Then you have to hold people accountable. And if over time, over your specific period of time, if nothing changes, then you've got to make a change because now you've invested in something that isn't, it's not going to work. And over time, you'll be able to figure that out. I don't give it a lot of time. I give it about, I figure every hiring decision is a 90 day commitment. After 90 days with somebody I've brought on or hired, I pretty much know if it's going to work out or not. I know if, it, and what's really interesting when you hire the very right person, they make an impact within the first three, four days. 
of coming mm-hmm. into the organization. It's just boom, you can just see it. And then others take a little bit longer, but when they get there, they're they're great. But so you just have to, that's kind of the art. Those are kind of, you know, workshops that we do. And we do some training on how to, you know, how to live with that and how to develop talent and how to get talent to a place where they're very, not loyal, but they're just committed to the point where they just wouldn't necessarily, they wouldn't job hop around you if you get the right person. And that's a real epidemic right now in the management world, the restaurant world, food service, hospitality world is really suffering from, you know, the lack of being able to hire managers because they skip around and jump around all over the place. So Yeah, I think every industry, you know, if you're smart, you want to figure out a way where you can start recruiting your own people and getting them increased internally inside your organization by giving them tools because it is, it's hard to be like, you know what, I want to find this person and then think that you're going to go find that person. It is much more likely that you're like, I am going to take someone who has good skills and the traits that I'm looking for. I'm going to help develop them into the type of person that I think can help my company. Yeah. It's funny because in any industry, you see all these recycled managers. They move from branch to branch. They, you know, they, they're in Florida and now they're doing the same branch in Arizona or whatever. And they're, they're kind of recycled, if you will. You get the same version over and over and over again, where when you bring in somebody from another industry that, I mean, I brought this kid in from the hospitality industry, showed him how to make a living in real estate by showing houses and listing houses. And in a fraction of the amount of time he was spending, you know, doing his banquet business, so to speak, mm-hmm. um, he made the same amount of money in a fraction amount of of the time. And he had more enjoyment because he had, when you sell somebody a house and you hand them the keys, um, it's quite an experience because for, especially if it's their first home and they just, you know, it's like, wow, we've actually made a commitment. We're going to raise, we're going to live here and probably raise our family here and commit to this community. And sometimes emotional experience is pretty cool. Um, and if you do that over and over and over again, you're, you get reinforced that what you're doing is such a good thing. And it, it ca- it, it's like a hamster wheel effect. It causes you to reach out more, talk to more people, because, you know, at the end, that's what it looks like. They're happy. They're satisfied. They consider you a friend. Most of the time, uh, you'll have a relationship for the rest of your life. If you choose to follow up and stay in touch, there's mm-hmm. just so many advantages to this business. They're crazy. It's kind of one of the last frontiers, too, for Hardly very little investment and lots of upside. Not much risk to it. Well, it has been really great, Scott, to have you on this episode of Cultivating Success Podcast today. I really enjoyed going over your book. I think that it is definitely worth a read to really get some of that knowledge that you've gained over the last 40 years. And I think all these points that you've made are extremely, extremely valuable. uh, And I appreciate you joining us today. If you could, please let everyone know where they can uh, get your book and how they can connect with you, actually. Yeah, just go on the website, uh, scott-agnew.com. Uh, look me up on, you know, Google me. I'm not the comedian. I'm Scott Agnew, the realtor with uh, Keller Williams. Um, and long-term, or you can look up Long-Term Leader. It's available on Amazon if you're interested in the book. And uh, that's about it. If you want to Directly contact me. It's Scott A, S-C-O-T-T-A at KW.com. 
Well, Scott, thank you again for joining us today. We appreciate having you on the Cultivating Success podcast and look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks, Jonathan. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Bye. This has been the Cultivating Success podcast with Jeff Sofer and Jonathan Wolfson. To learn more about Jeff and Jonathan and their businesses, visit www.naturesexperts.com.